Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty. I'm here with Daniel Quinn and Christopher Prunty. On today's episode, we are interviewing quietly legendary game designer Avery Alder. Although, if you're paying attention, it's not even that quiet. Uh, <laughs> we're going to jump to that interview now. All right, and we are joined today by game designer Avery Alder. Avery, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, for those of us who might not know you too well, can you tell us exactly who you are? Um, yeah, my name is Avery. I am an independent tabletop role-playing game designer. I've been designing games for the past 14 years. Um, and over that time, I've noticed a bunch of themes that kind of shown up over and over again in my work. So I tend to design games that are about self-discovery, relationships, community, queer community especially, and then also the collapse of civilization. Um, I used to say that I have designed a lot of post-apocalyptic games, but that tends to conjure up in people's minds images of like bikers with guns, uh, whereas I'm more interested in like, what do we do when we no longer have running water? What do we do when our like seeds garden or like our seed library spoils? Um, so like that kind of post-apocalyptic storytelling. And so some of my past work, maybe I'll mention, um, I designed Monster Hearts, a game about teenage monsters uh, and all their secrets and shame and drama. I designed The Quiet Year, which is a map drawing game uh, about a community living through the collapse of civilization and what they build with one year of relative peace. Um, I designed Dream Askew, which is a game of um, queer community building and relationships, um, again, amidst the collapse of civilization. Um, and I designed Ribbon Drive, which is a game about road trips, mixtapes, and letting go. Uh, and where can we find all of these games, Avery? Yeah, so I've self-published them all under the uh, name Buried Without Ceremony. And so buriedwithoutceremony.com is kind of the, the hub for all of my game design work and projects and things like that. Excellent. I was listening to your talk, uh, the NYU on practicing game design. And so I have a couple questions that are not really questions so much as they're like things that you said that I thought really impacted me when I heard them. And I just wanted to get people who haven't seen that talk to let you talk about it more. Um, so the first, the first thing that you mentioned when you were talking about working with um, Benjamin Rosenbaum on um, like his version of Dream Askew, which is Dream Apart, um, you talked about uh, the phrase designing relationally. Um, and I just thought that that was such a, it encapsulated like that concept so well. And if I could get like a nugget of like expanding on what that means for game design and how other designers mm -hmm. could approach that. Yeah. Okay. So the talk that you're referring to was at the uh, NYU Game Center and it was for a conference called Practice. And Practice mm -hmm. is really interesting because rather than being like <clears throat> a generalist conference that you are trying to kind of uh, convey what you do as a designer to the widest possible audience. It's very much focused, like there are a hundred people in the room, they are game designers, um, they are um, working in related fields and they are here for like the minutia of your design process. So we don't want like big, bold statements about how to revolutionize game design. And we don't want, you know, like slides with power words like we get at GDC, like we wanna know like, how you spent five years tinkering with this algorithm or like something like that, right? And so um, I did a talk, it was an hour long and it was about designing Dream of You in relationship with another designer designing Dream Apart. 
and how like our back and forth process shaped the engine that uh, fuels both of those games. Um, and yeah, so designing relationally, I guess what I what I meant when I coined that phrase or used that phrase in that moment um, is that we were not directly collaborating on the same project. Instead, I designed this game called Dream of Few. Benjamin was like, I really see how a lot of these same design principles and techniques and strategies and kind of this design framework could uh, meaningfully help me tell stories about uh, life within like a Jewish shtetl community somewhere in Europe in the 1800s. And so the more that Benjamin worked on it, the more intrigued I was about what he was doing. Um, and the more I was like, oh, this idea you have about key relationships is really important. It's something that's, that's actively absent from Dream of Skew. I've got this game that's theoretically about queer community, but you don't actually see like what the relationships are. They're not written down anywhere. And so I kind of started to be like, is it okay if I actually borrow back some of these innovations? And he was like, absolutely. And the more that I did that, the more than he was excited to borrow back some of those innovations. And we ended up kind of designing uh, in this back and forth way that was really fun because I don't, I don't know about any of you, but I can really struggle with collaborating. Um, yes. <laughs> like freeness and openness. Like if we're talking about like what we'll do later where we world build for 15, 20 minutes, that kind of collaboration is fine because I don't have like years of my life attached to it. But I have, I'm going to have years of my life attached to anything that makes it into print. Um, yeah. So for me, this designing back and forth where we're each working on our own game and we're kind of doing this show and tell back and forth and we're, we're thinking, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to steal that. Um, and letting our, our own design processes kind of co-inform one another was this really rewarding type of collaboration that for me really took away a lot of the fear of letting go, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that you, you kind of touched upon is uh, a theme that I've seen throughout your work is this idea of uh, community, you know, whether it be creating a community or one's relationship to community, there's a, a real emphasis on community in your games, whether it be through design or whether it be through storytelling. You know, in one of your talks, I remember you talking about this idea that, you know, drawing a map brings everyone around the table and, you know, kind of scrunches everyone together and builds that community that way. And I, I, I was very curious when I was listening to that, like, how did you deal with 2020 when that really wasn't possible? You know, like as someone who steeps themselves in community, what was 2020 like for you? I mean, 2020 was weird. Um, for sure. I, I don't do a lot of online role-playing. Um, and I've had different offers to do online role-playing as well as like online workshop facilitation. And I've been really hesitant to approach those because for me, the, the physically being there around the table, <clears throat> the, the energy that kind of can circulate through a room, that's part of the experience. And so trying to, trying, trying to, uh, both reconceptualize what it is to come together to tell stories and also to like accept that things can be different and still good <laughs> has been like a learning process for me over the past year. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's made me think a lot about um, uh, accessibility in our, um, in this hobby or in this medium in different ways. Um, it's made me think about 
how we've got a culture that is that is no longer organized around like households and like neighborhoods and it's actually kind of hard to pull people together um we've kind of got these specialized interest groups that are scattered like physically across cities um Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I, I've I've been reflecting on that. And I don't feel like it has totally congealed um, yet, but it but it's made me really reflect on like I really want. I in twenty twenty we talked about like having a having your bubble, the people who you are in a bubble with, and it's made me think a lot about kind of bubble design as well as designing games uh, that can scale to different people's different bubbles. Um, and a lot of people that I know who I'm friends with like they're living alone in the city or they're living like with one or two roommates who they may or may not be closely connected to in the city. Mm-hmm. And I kind of design games on the assumption that people can always freely come together and eat together and play together and talk together. And 2020, I guess, has posed a design challenge that I haven't meaningfully addressed yet. Mm. I, I, I fully agree with you that like there is something that's lost when you're doing it online. I, I am mostly an in-person gamer. Like there is some energy, there's some physicality to it, to just being around a group of people who you really love or really want to be a part of. And I, 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 I have felt that pain immensely through 2020 as well, because not being able to game with my friends has been, you know, something that's been a miss there. And I, I you know, uh, again, considering your work and everything like that, I, I'm so glad to hear that this is something that is incredibly challenging for you as well, because I think there's some level of, you know, like as someone who creates communities, there's some catharsis knowing that it's not just us, you know, who are who are also kind of suffering and everything like that. Like it, it does raise some questions because like I'm, I'm curious now, like in the past, just my own experience in the pandemic, too, is that. I've had more role playing recently only because it's been digital. And I wonder um, like what, what makes people feel so dramatically differently too. Like, although I totally agree that like that in-person experience is vital, but suddenly there's like a different kind of community, which I think you're talking about these, that we have individual bubbles now or our communities have shrunk. Right. So I wonder, you know, how will that change things now that we've had this horrible quiet year, basically, right. Of, of 2020, (laughs) you know, yeah, uh, well, I, I mean, sorry to cut in, but yeah. there was a great bit in one of your books that's basically like that that says, you know, the apocalypse, everyone thinks the apocalypse was happening to everyone all at once, yeah. but it really comes yeah. in like waves. And I feel yeah. like in a lot of ways, we we, we kind of approach 2020 from We're like living a couple of ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're living it's, in, it's, a, in an Avery's game, you know? <laughs> it, it is weirdly prophetic how much we're, yeah. we're appreciating that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the things that I really want to get people to think about when they tell stories um, in apocalyptic settings or in like collapse oriented settings is that these dynamics of like power that exist in our real world today, they're not just going to like magically go away. Like it's very, very unlikely that we'll have an even distribution of like harm and collapse and shutdown and infrastructure loss. And even in the 2020 pandemic, like we, we've, I think this is one of the pandemics that has hit the globe, regardless of kind of like geopolitical privilege, like fairly evenly. But now we're seeing like responses and we're seeing vaccine rollouts. And I live in Canada. Canada has one of the highest rates of um, purchasing of the um, Pfizer and Moderna um, 
vaccines so far. And there are other countries, like there are a lot of African countries and South American countries that just are not give, being given the privilege of buying large stocks of this vaccine, um, both for cost and supply reasons, right? Um, for for privileged buyer reasons. And so these are the kind of things that I think um, are often missing from post-apocalyptic storytelling, right? It's like, there will still be gated communities with television. They will still be like, it will still be streaming like premium cable channels. And then there will be people who cannot get water. And like those two, those two things will continue to exist just like they exist in our real world, but like intensified and exploded uh, and taken to their like illogical conclusions. Mm. Yeah. Uh, even even here where uh, there seems to be like more access to vaccines and everything, it's still kind of like a tiered system of uh, administrators or people who aren't even dealing with the public getting the vaccine before uh, workers that deal with the public getting the vaccine. And it's a weird dynamic of everything was this kind of cohesive, Hey, we're all in this together. And then when things start to get better, it's uh, kind of the, just like, well, well, we were the same, but now we're not. It's almost as though that's some kind of propaganda used to separate us, Chris. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking about um, distribution, right? So <laughs> this is like tangentially related, but also I, I think it points back to the systems that we deal with, at least in terms of, of commerce. Um, you talked a little bit about this um, when you were you're talking about learning to trust people in terms of working with your games and using your games or adapting them. <laughs> Um, and so I wonder, I want to pick your brain about like copyleft licensing, you know, Creative Commons, SRDs, all that stuff. Um, do you like in, in your perspective, are the are these kind of like vestiges of the, all the kind of capitalist apparatus we have for distributing our work? Or do, are, do you do you think of new ways of, of modeling that um, outside of the, you know, the licensing that we have on hand? Because um, I imagine this is a space where we could innovate and I'm, I'm not sure what that would look like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that any thoughts that I have on copyright and copyleft and intellectual property sharing, like absolutely do not scale and are not well thought through. Um, I don't know that I'm, I'm well positioned to actually answer this question, but my feeling is that copyleft and the creative commons don't meaningfully address the issue that I like one of the issues that I really see in copyright, um, which is that it's contract oriented and not relationship oriented. Oh, um, okay. And the, the thing that I feel about like property, either material or uh, intellectual or uh, conceptual um, is that um, we, we lose sight of the thing that matters when we focus on contracts. Um, and because in my mind, what, what matters is sharing, relationship building, and um, developing communities of exchange and economies of exchange uh, and kind of gift economies and things like that. And so for me, I, I've never really taken the time to learn what CC licenses most speak to the way that I want to share. I've kind of just encouraged people to reach out to me and talk to me if they want to use my stuff. Um, and like Monster Hearts 2 has um, has 
their playbooks in Monster Hearts 2 are called skins. And I have a template created with like guidance on how to create your own. And I, in the book, I'm like, here's my email address, email me and I'll share the template with you. <clears throat> and the reason that I have it set up that specific way is that I just want to have that moment of connection with people and to get to kind of check in with people as they're, as they're going forward. Like, cool, what are you working on? What is it based in? Do you need any help with that? Um, and often it's a very quick email exchange, but like having some kind of point of social connection involved in that process feels really meaningful and important to me. So it's kind of like continuing the concept of designing relationally, except for that you're doing it um, almost at scale in the sense that you have your work out there, you're letting people work with it, but you're, they're both designing in tandem with you um, on their own separate projects in a sense. Yeah. And I think that I have often... Um, been more territorial um, than is necessary. I think the the people who uh, most exemplify a collaborative and relational way of kind of like exchanging like design IP for me in our community are the bakers, Vincent and McGay Baker. Like what Apocalypse Worlds did was it really invited people like here, take these tools, do interesting things with them. Um, and like witnessing that and witnessing how people um, took that invitation and ran with it and looking at my own career and looking how much of it kind of has developed from the point of that invitation. It's like, it's really humbling and it, and it like forced me to like recognize like I need to be open and encouraging and I need to be looking at my work, not just like within like its own silo of like, how does this benefit me? How does this profit me? How does this boost my name? But also like, where are there opportunities to encourage new designers through my own work? In a, in a way that really kind of mirrors your own um, game design as well. In another interview, you were talking about what it means, you know, to design games that are, you know, uh, working away from in powerful individualists, right? Who bring welcome change. And in a lot of ways, what you're doing here is it's kind of, doing that own your own journey of that in a sense, right? Where you're trying to be more open and, and less hoarding like a dragon, so to speak, when it comes to intellectual property. But I'm sure that everyone else can kind of appreciate, you know, once you've created something that you feel is yours, it's very hard to let go. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a difficult, like, uh, human instinct to overcome the desire to like, covet something and make it smaller um, rather than sharing it and making it bigger. Um, and it's, I mean, it, this is a theme that comes up in my games because it's something that I am attempting to teach myself um, and I'm attempting to learn. Uh, that is generally true of all of my games. Like if they're exploring a theme, it's because it's a theme that I am hoping to someday have internalized. Mm -hmm. When you, when you say, um, like an RPG helping you to internalize a theme that makes me think of um, Brave Sparrow in particular. Um, and it is, I just, I was just reading through it again, like last night. And um, when I think of like RPGs growing up for myself, I think about how it helped me um, develop socially in ways that would have been difficult if I didn't have that. Like I'd have to figure it out out in the wild basically. And it gave me an opportunity to do that. And when I'm reading through Brave Sparrow, like I was just struck that the rules of the game um, the way that you have to do them require you to behave that way in, in the in the world outside. So to, so you have to be brave. That's part of the game. But being brave is something you do in the outside world. 
Um, so I hadn't considered before how like a solo RPG works or how it can do these things. Um, so I was just wondering, and we don't get to hear much about how people design solo RPGs. Could you talk a little bit about the process of dealing with all those games in that collection um, and what what you bring into designing like a solo RPG? Yeah, um, Brave Sparrow is really interesting to think about for me, like now from where I am um, at this point in my life, because I wrote this game about like believing that you are um, a bird, like you are something that no one else in the world believes that you are and navigating the world um, as this kind of this impossible thing and um, kind of embracing the fact that doing so will make you different, will make you a social deviant. It will require bravery that other people will never be able to really truly register, but that will come to define your life. Um, and yeah, just believing against all possibility that you are this impossible thing. And then like a year later, I um, realized that I'm trans. And um, like retrospectively looking at it, I'm like, oh, that is what Brave Sparrow is about. That's the thing that I was trying to, to develop, that I was trying to teach myself. Um, but like at the time, I was like, I'm going to write a game where you are a bird and you just have to learn how to believe that about yourself. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, <clears throat> the process of designing independent, like solo role-playing games, I think is, is a weird one. I tend to think, um, about the medium in terms of like, what is it that playing a game alone can do that playing a game with a group is actually harder to do. Um, and there's a lot of things that that are just easier in a group. But the one thing that I think like a solitaire role-playing game allows you to do um, that a group role-playing game doesn't is it allows you to have what it feels like in your body be a meaningful creative input. Like that's a meaningful narrative input. Um, and not like you have to come up with words to describe how your character feels in your body, which is like how it works in a group setting, but just like actually like get a feeling in your body. Great. That is the narrative input. And now we see what the mechanics give us in return. Um, and so, yeah, the games that I write that end up being solo role-playing games are games that kind of hinge upon that interaction rather than putting things to work. It was, it was just like really incredible to see in that game, even though it's it's very slim and it's very simple, like in its construction, like how there's this, usually in RPG, there's like a liminal space between like, I'm a character and I'm me. And you've got to like cross that threshold back and forth, but it's like not there in Brave Sparrow. And that's what's like scary about it, but also really cool. And I just didn't know that was possible, like in an, an RPG at all, like a solo RPG in particular. Yeah, a lot of... Um my understanding of what a solo RPG can be came from um, this game design competition called the Solitaire Game Design Challenge, I think, in 2011. And it was organized by a group of people. I can't remember the full group, but I know that Emily Kerboss was one of those people who put it on. Um, and uh, I had never considered the possibility that there could be a single player role-playing game. Aside from like, I guess like the fighting fantasy game book style of thing, um, <laughs> that that competition and like the the creative work that came out of that in such a compressed space, I think just really blew my mind and made me excited to tinker in that space as well. 
that really ties into this idea that you once said that, you know, we, we need to recognize that every game mechanic is inherently political and imposes some kind of a paradigm. Uh, I, I actually am curious as to whether you believe that's true about communication as well, because I often feel that game mechanics or, or writing in general, realistically, are an invitation to, uh, to, to create dialogue between you yourself or you and other people. Um, yeah, so sorry, the, the question is, is all communication political? Is that what you're asking? No, not necessarily. Uh, it's, it's more a matter of um, when you're writing, right? Like you, you mm -hmm. believe that it is that your game mechanics are inherently political, right? So can you translate that to, to uh, game mechanics or writing in general being an open invitation to communication? So it's not necessarily political, but uh, an invitation for some kind of a communication, to some kind of a dialogue to be created. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, part of playing a role-playing game is um, is figuring out how you engage with these structures, and not just like the actual literal game system, but the kind of the uh, world building that is implied by those game systems. Right? You're choosing how you engage with this specific formulation of um, power and social development, um, and that's that's like kind of one of the ways that I think about a game system in general, like I think D&D, &D, when you read those books, you are presented with a, like a formulation of how power and social development work, right? You gain XP, you gain loot that you are um, deserving of once you have recovered it. Um, like all, the, all these things, these are all ideas about how the world operates. And whenever you play a game, like you're choosing like, do I play this straight? Do I like do I attempt to undermine these systems of power? Like, am I working against or with the grain? Um, uh, how do I approach my character's power and social development within this structure? Um, and so I think that I think that yeah, role playing games are an invitation not just to create a story with the tools that you've been provided, but also to think meaningfully um, and often like kind of subconsciously and implicitly about what you think about that the world that they have presented and the, the laws of that world that they have presented to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I forget the name of the game, but it is a collaborative uh, storytelling game similar to the quiet year uh, in it. The, one of the mechanics that uh, yours has that it did not was the contempt tokens or the spite tokens. And uh the I was curious if that was always a part of it, or if it was something that came over time as far as its development. Um, I think contempt tokens. So this is we're talking about twenty ten to twenty twelve is the design period for the Quiet Year, and so I honestly don't remember um a lot of the details. Um, what I what I do know is that the very first things the game had were um creative prompts on cards and um drawing a map. Um, and you took turns. Um, the cards weren't a deck of playing cards until a friend, Jackson Tegu, pointed out, like, you do know that a playing card deck is a representation of the year, right? There are, like, 13 um, uh, card values as there are 13 moons in a the year. There are four suits as there are four seasons, like, and just kind of breaking it down for me, there are, like, the light and the dark cards as there's the light and the dark half of the year. And um, it's it kind of blew my mind 
to understand like that is what the structure of a playing card deck is. Um, and so then I quickly incorporated that into the game. Contempt tokens, I think, were there um, pretty early on. Um, and they have done different things throughout the, the course of the development of the game. They were kind of like a resource that you spent at one point. Um, and then um, eventually I realized that like what I wanted was I just wanted these little pile, this little pile of skulls or red tokens or whatever you might have to be building up in front of players, um, signifying like, listen, people are uncomfortable. There is tense history here and there's not really anything you can do about that. There's only, you can only choose how you act moving forward to prevent those piles from getting bigger. I believe one of my friends might have uh, modified it, but he had it where if you got your way, you got a contempt token, but he did it in the sense of uh, scandal. So you had to do something to get your way. And likewise, it wasn't something that you could spend, but it kind of created this weird social stigma of it just like, hey, you've gotten your way a lot. Uh, Give it to someone else. Like have something that someone at the someone else at the table can get their way mm. which i really enjoyed <laughs> yeah i think one of the things that i like about the design of the quiet gear is that the the resource that is most scarce even though you technically have like a list of scarcities like we have a scarcity of uh clean drinking water and of sunlight and things like that like you can address all of those the one scarcity you can't control is you have a scarcity of time and you have to decide mm-hmm. as a community, like, how much time do we spend, like, surveying the landscape and assessing our resources? How much time do we spend talking it through? And how much time do we spend just taking action? And ultimately, like, you're not going to satisfy everyone with the answer that you pick. Um, and some communities function best when they're like, we spend the majority of our time reaching a perfect solution and then last minute implement it. And other groups are like, you know what? We just got to, like, get stuff done. So like, let's just trust each other. Let's just operate in like a high trust, high risk environment and just get everything done. Um, mm. But but you there's there's no correct answer for how to have a community. You just have to run the risk of frustrating people. <laughs> I, I find that games like that often are very telling of the type of people you play with. You know, there there are games of the quiet year that are played very similarly to how I would see like blood in the clock tower or like a werewolf game would be played and then on the exact opposite scale you play with different people and it's it's like a genuinely kind and loving community building <laughs> you know ex- exercise but on the other one it's like we got to burn the witch we got to burn you know like oh that's that's the werewolf we got to burn the werewolf you know like yeah. it's the dichotomy that you express like is is so telling of the people and i love the expression of you know, the, the players that you play, you really get to know people when you play games like that with them. Yeah, I feel like the most telling thing that I ever encounter with The Quiet Year is when people, like, out of game are talking to me and say, like, I really like contempt tokens, but I feel like it's weird that they don't actually do anything. Um, and I and I always have this, like, internal, like, eyebrow-raising moment where I'm like, oh, wow, if you think that this doesn't do anything, <laughs> I would feel really uncomfortable in a community with you because if you think yeah. me feeling upset doesn't impact your actions, like whew, that says something. Lack of empathy, right there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just it's, uh, different, it's different ways of like conceptualizing what the mechanics say. 
Uh, and I don't think it's like actually like a a reflection of that person's deepest, truest soul necessarily. But but it's so interesting because I'm like, you know what? I think having a pile of skulls sitting across the table from me and knowing that I am partially responsible for that skull, pile of skulls even existing, like that feels like it is hugely impactful. Like that, mm-hmm. that there is an outcome occurring there already because now I'm navigating like from a different emotional like place. You're, you're almost na- navigating what it means to be complicit, right? In, mm-hmm. in a certain way, in some sense. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I'm really happy we had that new well. I, I'm okay <laughs> with people feeling upset about it. Yeah. I can, I can take us away from the dark stuff. I have some, some tedious world building questions because yes. you have to do the world building <laughs> questions. <laughs> oh, so yeah. for, forgive me, Avery, because I'm sure you've answered these a thousand times. So I'm hoping to pick from the many, very many, very useful um, Twitter threads that you've archived, like in your Twitter. You should have, obviously guys, anyone listening, go to Twitter and look at those archived threads because there's really a lot of great stuff in there. But here's one question. Um, number one, we asked everyone, um, what is the number one world building tip you could give to newbie creators who are just embarking on their first, um, game design? Yeah, I feel torn on how to answer that question. Part of me, um, wants to have a, um, uh, like a, a big fancy structural answer about thinking through the, ec- like economics. Um, mm-hmm. but I think actually a thing that is often, um, uh, really important in world building and not sufficiently like addressed is the significance of everyday things and how it is like emotionally and relationally different to, to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like based on like how a, a culture's like economy functions, how a culture's like family units are formed, like household units are formed, um, how a community and a culture like share and distribute labor and share and distribute goods. Um, like all of those things inform what different everyday small interactions mean, what their emotional like resonance and significance is. Um, and that's, that's the thing that I think like good world building um, will will allow an author or, a, you know, like an author or a designer or a, a storyteller to narrate like an everyday thing that also happens in our world and have it mean something entirely different. So going bottom up is kind of what you're saying, like start with a small detail and go outward from there. Yeah, yeah, I think just like, I think masterful world building allows you to like have a scene where someone pours tea for someone else but then like leaves the teapot on the table and you're like, oh shit, like the Galactic Empire is about to crumble. Uh-huh. It means so much <laughs> more from that one image. Yeah, I love exactly. that. Exactly. And you, you don't have to like change like huge uh, things. Like you don't have to have warp cores or you don't have to have like elemental summoning to have a world that is fundamentally different than ours. You can reconfigure like what we already know and what is really familiar to us and like what we have tactile memories of, and you can you can rewrite what those things mean. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I think that answers that question for me. <laughs> my <laughs> my next question for you is is uh, also broad, but it's something I think we all struggle with. Um, and I know you took a period off to kind of like get things straightened out in your own head um, because of burnout and various things that were going on in your life. Um, how do you, how do we avoid getting to that point or do we not, are we not able to avoid it? We've got to get through it. Like what are your thoughts on burnout with design? 
Yeah, I think um, we currently live in a culture um, where designers, writers, artists, um, and other like, well, I think the phrase content producers has become common. <laughs> and very important. Um, there, there, there's this, there's this real um, pervasive, uh, not only idea but like feeling that you need to be creating constantly to be relevant and for your work to be um, like meaningfully engaged with other people's work. For your stuff to get played or seen, you need to create constantly. And I know that in 2013, I started a Patreon um, and Patreon was really cool in a lot of ways. It allowed um, me to like support myself um, while working on more experimental and small form design. But I found myself really quickly in a trap that I see a lot of designers today in with platforms like Patreon um, or like Itch, um, where they are needing to churn out co content constantly in order to keep the lights on, or if they're not doing it, uh, you know, as their main source of income, even just to, like to feel meaningfully engaged in their community. And um, when I was like 23 and uh, not sick, and I was able-bodied, and I didn't have dependents. The idea of like, I'll just produce a game every single month for eight hundred dollars. Um, that <laughs> felt like like uh, just a thing I could do. But like the moment that I was like, I'm starting to deal with chronic illness. I'm starting to like, you know, as I grow up, like realize that there's a wider set of bills that I'm going to be needing to face. Like, it became more and more like overwhelming, and um, that. Uh, that model of kind of constant content creation, um, it leaves no room for getting sick. It leaves no room for going on vacation, no room for like, you know, having a friend come from out of town and stay with you for a week and you can like go and walk by the ocean. Um, right. None of that, right? Like you have, you have to create content. Um, and the more I got locked into that kind of frantic sense of obligation, the more the game design just like lost any of its charm for me. And so I think um, like I really want people to succeed as game designers, especially like uh, as game designers who are making it as like independent publishers running their own small business if they, if they want. But like one of my first pieces of advice for anyone who wants to go down that path is like take a really hard look at whether you actually want to run a small business. And like, mm -hmm. if you decide that, you know, I'd rather actually just like work at Starbucks or work at an office <clears throat> and design games in my spare time, like that is extremely valid and potentially a lot more um, sustainable for like your joy of, in design than trying to like make a full-time go of it. Um, and so that's my first thought about burnout is like, there is nothing uh, more valiant or more legitimate about doing this as like a full-time job than there is about like doing this as a side gig or a fun hobby. Um, and you don't need to be locked into this idea of like, I'm a full-time content producer in order to be to consider yourself like quote unquote, a legitimate game designer. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's, that's a thought about burnout is like, <clears throat> don't set yourself up on the treadmill of constant content production. Don't think of yourself as needing to produce specific quotas in order to be legitimate. Um, and on the financial side, like 
the way that I support myself and my family is that I, every 16 months or so, put out a title that goes into my like evergreen catalog uh, that is like going to be available and supporting me with a long tail income for years. Um, the work that I did in 2012 and 2016 pays my bills today more than anything. Um, and I think like that is how I have found game design uh, to be a, like a sustainable job. And that's how it seems like others who have it, who have a sustainable job in game design do it as well. It makes me think what you've just said, uh, I think could be best summarized as one of the rules in Brave Sparrow, which is um, that you have to witness beauty from time to time, you know? I love that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean any of that prescriptively. If there are people out there who are like, I produce 47 games uh, <laughs> a year and, um, and I, you know, I sell each of them for $2 and um, I just constantly create new games. Um, and, and that's how I pay my bills. Like, amazing that is that is so great i'm like so excited for there to be a diversity of approaches that work i just know that for myself learning to slow down to remember that like i'm a game designer no matter whether i have produced something in the last few months or not um and just focusing on like what i want is like stable releases that are going to stand the test of time that's what has worked for me I appreciate that you um, you also appreciate the workaholics out there because it's like I think I struggle to do exactly what you're saying, which is like take a pause and think about what you're doing. And so you know, like it's good to hear that it's a valid approach, but it may drive me insane as well. You know. Oh, I have so many follow ups to that, Dan. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, that that that's that's actually genuinely touching. That was a great. That's great. That, that makes me feel something. I'm not gonna lie. Um, so Avery, uh, I've got a couple of questions from our patrons, if that's cool with you. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, um, Commissar Whiskers actually wants to know, uh, what your favorite and least favorite versions of the apocalypse are. <laughs> uh, what my favorite and least favorite versions of the uh, apocalypse are. Yeah. Okay. Very <laughs> Um, I mean, I think there's two ways to interpret that question. Um, the, uh, the first is like, uh, what the apocalyptic event is. And the second is like, what our general response as human beings to it is. And the general response to human beings to it, one, I feel like the least interesting apocalyptic stories are the ones where lone wolf men with guns who happen to correspond to those who hold the most privilege in our current society are, after the apocalypse, also holding the most privilege uh, and going around with guns and killing people. Um, that is very uninteresting um, and has also been thoroughly trod. Um, the most interesting, I think, is um, seeing how the collapse pulls people together um, into unexpected communities. Um, and how those communities slowly develop patchwork connections with one another. Um, my favorite book of all time is Station Eleven uh, by Emily St. John Mandel, and it is absolutely about that. It is about the formation of a theater company that travels on um, horseback um, or horse-drawn carriages from like small outpost to small outpost, 20 years after the apocalypse, like putting on Shakespearean plays 
or the people who are like living in the wasteland. Um, I love that. I think that's so interesting. Um, yeah, that's so cool. It's, yeah. it's much better than what you were talking about with, um, well, what's that trash book, Chris, uh, two minutes after or something like that, which basically is every bad trope of the, <laughs> the post-apocalypse genre that yeah. you can imagine. 30, 10 days in, there's already cannibalism and <laughs> raiders. Yeah, it's like it, it's like these the individualists have no respect for actual community building. It's like no everyone's everyone's awful, and I've got to get mine before they get me. You know, like that type of thing. Nobody wants to play in that world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I can understand um, people, like stuff hits the fan, and there's a few people, but this was like pe- the only communities that form were just like, yeah, we're gonna become raiders, right? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna, yeah. <laughs> In terms of what I think is the most interesting apocalypse to occur, um, I think uh, zombies and nuclear war are the least exciting to explore, and plants take over is the most exciting to explore. Ooh, I like that. Are you a big Happening fan? Is that what I'm hearing right now? I've never engaged with the Happening, but... um, Oh my goodness! It, it's the if you're a fan of trash, I would strongly recommend watching The Happening. It's I was gonna so say, fun. is that movie terrible? <laughs> yes, yes, it is, and that's how great. dare you recommend it? <laughs> right now, well, I'm, right now, I'm reading um, the Book of Coley by M. R. Carey, and in this apocalyptic world, trees are very fast and dangerous. Um, the oh. humans created climate change, soil degradation happened, trees could. Um, survive less and less well, and so scientists engineered newer, better trees that could grow roots faster, that could like shift their root structure to take advantage of better soil conditions. And the trees just they got too fast and they got too vicious and they took over. Uh, and it's That's... like hundreds of years later, and it's just like people are just like, yeah, trees, the things that you have to like chase down and kill in packs and then bring back to the the wood splitter. And like you have to fight them to claim their wood. That's amazing. I want to play in that game. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want. What's the, I'm sorry. What was the name of that book again? Yeah, it's um, it's the book of Coley. A friend recommended it. It's by M. R. Carey, who previously I've only engaged with um, the girl with all the gifts, the movie, but that's based on an M. R. Carey book. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so I think we're at the point where we're ready. To, oh wait, no, I have one more. I'm sorry. Uh, so I have another patron. C.R. Rowanson wants to know, what is your favorite indie game and who is your favorite indie game designer? Uh, I am going into overthinking mode as I'm like, I want to make sure I have a nice reflection of like current and older designs. And I want to think about who I'm spotlighting and be intentional about that spread. And so, um, you know, you could just say Gary Gygax. And then <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thank you, thank you for that, that beautiful out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. No, I think I've got it. Um, so I think my answer about my favorite game tends to change fairly regularly. But at this exact moment, three come to mind. Um, the first is Blades in the Dark by John Harper. Um, it's more kind of crunchy and mechanically uh, intricate than most games that I tend to, to gravitate towards. But I have just had such a blast 
playing at when I've played it. Um, and I and I really liked a lot of the world building, and I like how none of the world building is static. It's all like, well, here's 50 different ticking time bombs. Figure out how they go together. Um, so Blades in the Dark, um, another one that comes to mind is Dialect by Catherine Himes and Hakan Gealiagu. I'm so sorry, Hakan, I don't actually know how to pronounce the last name. Please forgive that butchery. But um, these two have created this really cool game about um, language and how communities of language users kind of um, work with language changing, integrating, and collapsing. Um, and it, in a similar vein to, I think, Microscope and The Quiet Year, it is a game that is not about kind of a linear story with individual actors, but rather about moving through time and community in a bit more of like a bird's eye view kind of way. And I think it's really interesting. It does really cool things. Uh, every game I've played with it has been just like fundamentally different. Um, and um, yeah, really cool world building explored in a way that I haven't experienced before. And then uh, the third one would be Monster Girl 1244 by Frederick Jensen. And this is the game that I think is out of print, but it is a game about being Cathars under siege by the Catholics. You are trapped in this castle for a year. You know that at the end of the year, like these characters are each going to face a choice. They're going to convert to Catholicism or they're going to burn at the stake. And there is, there is no like heroic triumph. There is no way to get out of this bind. It's just like you are besieged by a superior force and you, you need to slowly come to terms with this decision that you have to make. Um, and it's, it's just that storyline, um, that refusal to like create heroic, um, moments of kind of over overcoming adversity and just being like, no, this, this is historical. This is what happened. They had this choice and eventually they had to make it. It, it does something different with kind of the story plotting and with historical games than anything I've seen before. Um, yeah. And it's just really dark and cool. Um, and then favorite designer, that one feels much harder to answer, but, um, Right now, I have the privilege of working as a design consultant on Apocalypse Tees by um, a designer based out of the Philippines named Jamie. And they are just a very cool and kind of prolific designer. They've been designing so many cool things. Um, and um, yeah, getting, getting to work with their design and kind of like learn more about how their design brain uh, works has been really fascinating and cool. Um, and I think my answer, who's my favorite designer, um, is probably going to often be like, well, whoever I'm doing a close reading of their text as a collaborator or design consultant at the current moment. But that's my answer right now is, is, uh, Jamie, who's on Twitter at, at Temporal Hiccup, I believe. Excellent. And with the patron questions out of the way, let's go ahead and transition over to the world building jam. Is everyone ready? Yes. Yeah. All right. So for those of you who might not know how this works, we're going to be rolling some dice and we're going to be creating a fictionalized scenario based on those uh, dice rolls. 
So first up, we have to pick a genre of what we're going to be talking about today, and that can be between science fiction, fantasy, horror, modern day, romance, or a superhero. And we're going to go ahead and start that now. So we're going with the sci-fi or science fiction genre. Next, we're going to be choosing a subject within that, and that can be either between an item, a monster, a place, an historical figure, an event, or a cataclysm. And we've got an event. And finally, we have the archetypal story that we're going to be following. And that's going to be any of the major seven archetypal stories, whether it be Overcoming the Monster, Rags to Riches, The Quest, Voyage and Return, Comedy, Tragedy, or Rebirth. So let's go ahead and see what we've got here. So we've got Voyage and Return. Now, uh, as our guest, Avery, you have the first go of this idea. We've got a science fiction story centered around an event with an archetypal story of voyage and return. So take your time and take it away. Okay. Um, so the first things that come to mind with that set of prompts is either first contact with an alien species mm -hmm. or, or something like um, going through a wormhole. Um, I think that I think that any um, science fiction event about going and returning that is like based on Earth um, uh, has this like complex challenge of figuring out how to either avoid it being a colonial narrative or uh, deconstruct the fact that it is a colonial narrative, and both of those seem really daunting, um, which has me gravitating towards space. Um, so yeah, maybe. Um, I, I feel like the, the first, um, the first manned mission through the wormhole, um, and back, um, and like one of those, like for us only 10 minutes has passed, but for you, it's been a thousand years. Um, I don't know. How, how do you all feel about that? I love that as a start. Um, is, is there any way that we could kind of expand that? So rather than just a singular kind of ship? Could we make it be like the first community that goes through, like to kind of go with the theme uh, that we kind of build building so far? Yeah. Okay. So, so in that case, maybe what we have is a scenario where there are multiple kind of colony ships that are, that are traveling through a wormhole. They're, they're going to kind of establish, I, th I think humans have just uh, really destroyed earth through climate change. And there are some people who are staying and they're like, we are bioremediators and we're going to fix Earth. But a lot of people are like, actually, we're just going to bail. We're going to, we found a habitable world. It's through this wormhole. We're going to travel. We're going to experience weird time distortion, but we're going to send three colony ships. And we have this third colony ship like showing up like a hundred years later than everyone else. And they show up to the world being fundamentally different than what they were promised because of the event. Oh, that's excellent. I just keep thinking of the Michelin web sketch, the event. <laughs> yes, yes, we all remember before the event. 
the voyage and return, I think, is almost implicit in what you're talking about because you've got this third ship showing up late, right, to a world that's now changed. It's it's already been populated, I assume, in those 100 years. So it's almost like they arrive and then if they haven't done a good job populating that world, they may have to go back to the world that was being remediated 100 years since. Right, because we have the return. Yeah, I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like the um, the third colony ship shows up and the the other two have like they've already they've already built their societies, fought their civil yeah. wars, staked their territory, and there's like there's no room for you. Go back to Earth. It's the same place. I know oh, wow. it's terrible. <laughs> it, it also reminds me of uh, the Forever War, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that, where uh, pretty much soldiers out of time, since they've been fighting in this weird uh, time dilation, uh, they no longer fit in society, and they don't understand it when they return, and they're mm-hmm. just like. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on and everything feels so alien. I'm just going to go to a third place to be with all the people who pretty much experienced the rare thing that I did. More on the margin. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, what's, what's, what's funny is that their return home might feel like hopeless to them, but they might actually return to a world that's been restored because so much time has passed, like 200 years then if it's a hundred in and a hundred out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in order to like, get there and to reintegrate into that hopeful bioremediated possibility they have to like come to grips with the fact that like if, if that's successful that means that they chose wrong like they got on a colony oh, ship they headed out thinking that utopia is just something that you build from scratch and now they're having to like return sheepish to earth to see whether like the people they rejected and walked out on were right all along because they didn't do the hard work like they haven't changed yeah oh that yeah. And, and, you, and you know that there's going to be people who are giving excuses and like, we've got to come up with a good cover story uh-huh. on our way back, you know, to, to have the excuse to come back and not have put in the work. Mm-hmm. That is, there, there's so many cool stories that you could tell with that situation. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe then the, the colony ships that left, like they were, they were driven to leave by a strong, like factionalism, a strong mm-hmm. sense of like, leaving earth and starting anew is the right way these people who are staying behind like they are they are stupid they are regressive right. they are hopeless mm. we are like the the biotechnical future we are the like we are the elon musk saviors of the human race um mm-hmm. and then they really like they get there late and everyone else has already like fought for all the scraps and they have to go back they have to go back to earth and they have to like a come to terms with like the mistake they made and b like learn to overcome their own factionalist instincts. I really love that. I love that. I really love that. And I and I I hate to do this, but now it's time to fuck everything up with a twist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's go ahead and see what we have for the twist. It better not be it was aliens. I'll be very upset. <laughs> no, we I, I per that that one got purged already, so oh, we're okay. good. Yeah, let's see what happens. Oh, so this one is this has all happened before. Oh. Which I think is really fascinating. It's oh, probably man. the best one we could have rolled, frankly. <laughs> that, uh, imagine, like, if you draw out the time dilation even more, if, yeah. like, suddenly in the Earth's uh, orbit, like, a colony ship is just like, hey, guys, you were right. Uh, we're back. And we'd be like, what the fuck are they talking about? <sighs> uh, I mean, I, I was even thinking, like, this is a recurring thing that happens. Like, there, there is a loop to it where they leave and come back. Like they're, they're almost 
constant uh, pilgrims, so to speak, right? Where well, the world's been destroyed multiple times, you mean? Uh, or, or it's a matter of they they keep may, maybe maybe part of it is that because they hold on to their factionalism so much, mm -hmm. this keeps happening to them. You know, like they, they they don't recognize that they are in fact the problem. It is not the you know the places they keep visiting, but their own factionalism that prevents them from actually settling in and actually creating something that is genuine and peaceful and good. Mm -hmm. And. I feel like to, to really make this feel twisty, I feel like maybe something weird happened in the wormhole where it spat out more than one of them. And so th they're, they're realizing this has already happened before because they are like colony ship three returning to Earth to like beg for forgiveness and like acceptance. And they're encountering colony ship three leaving, having just been told, no, you're not welcome here. And they're like, yes. can, can we succeed where we just failed? That's amazing. That. Yeah, that's crazy. crazy. Yeah, yeah. That and that's the kind of it's a it takes the the metaphorical struggling with yourself, right, to come to terms with your own inner turmoil, and it makes it literal in the actual context of the sci-fi. And, and, yeah. and in my head, the the story that's really being told is the travel through the wormhole. It's like the people having conversations about like. What did we do before? How can we fix it? How can we make mm -hmm. it better next time? You know, like the real, like immense change that comes from self-reflection. Yeah, it's like, the, it's the conversation. It was like the conversation yeah. at the heart of the game, right? But also the conversation we have to have with ourselves to solve these problems. Yeah, okay, so next, backing, backing up a little bit, I think that like, as they were about to head into the wormhole, this very first time there was a discussion about like, should, should we really be doing this? This is our last possible chance to like turn back and head to earth. And like, th that was the discussion that was occurring when they first went through that wormhole. And maybe that is even like what caused the, the split in the first place, the duplication. Oh, that's so cool. Like in yeah. the zone of the, of the wormhole, basically. Yeah. 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 The, the wormhole like heard them and was like, cool, you're torn. Well, I'll just pop one version of colony ship three out on this side of the wormhole and one version mm -hmm. back on the other side of the other one. And so they both get rejected at one location, and now they're both crossing paths again. Man. That's amazing. That, Can you okay. go write that book now, please, Avery? That <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> game, whichever one you want to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Okay, we're we're good. That's that's it. That that's going to be the world building jam for sure. Which means that yeah. we got to roll into the rapid fire questions. So, Avery, my wife wants to know: Is cereal a soup? Not in any meaningful sense, because. Uh, it is not culturally understood as such. Oh, someone did. Someone listened to the podcast. Yeah. Okay. I didn't very much. <laughs> very strong right. opinion. And uh, uh, another question: Who are you? Uh, what are you playing right now? It's been a minute since I actually played a role-playing game, and so um, the last kind of narrative that I really engaged with was Hades. Yeah. Woo. Okay. Well, that's actually a quick follow-up for me. Uh, who is your favorite god or goddess in Hades? Or actually, screw it, character. Who's your favorite character in Hades? Hmm. <clears throat> I think Nyx. I, I really mm -hmm. like that Nyx is this, like, maternal figure whose, like, skill is, like, this... Uh, this ability to, 
to just like hold space, witness people in their journey and like be like non-interfering as this like benevolent, this benevolent and caring and empathetic and like wise beyond uh, like possible limits type of non-intervention. Uh, and the mm-hmm. fact that like the way she shows her like motherly instinct towards Zagreus is just to like not interfere and to let him like realize that she's not actually his mother at all. There's something so compelling about Nick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, how do you feel about her relationship with chaos? Um. Yeah, I don't know. If I've, I I don't know if I've like fully uncovered everything that you might mean because there's. I feel like there's a lot. There's like I've I've beaten the game, but I feel like I haven't gone back and like beaten it over and over and over again to gain that like full rich depth of all the connections necessarily. That that's why I was kind of dancing around it because there's a big part with Nyx and Chaos that you kind of have to unlock after several runs, and I didn't want to give it away, so I'm just gonna leave it there. I'm and so excited. Yeah, yeah, we're going to keep it moving on to what have you been reading lately? Um, I have been reading almost exclusively productivity-oriented self-help books, if I'm going to be honest. Um, yeah. Uh, Atomic Habits, Industry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Atomic Habits was, was a, a game-changer for me. Um Every step is actionable. Every like bit of advice, like I, I've read several of those books as well. And it's always like there's 24 pages for every actual useful page. And Atomic Habits <laughs> was like, shred that. It's like, no, every page is full of valuable information. It's like so condensed and it's awesome. Sorry, I, I will gush about Atomic Habits all I want, but continue, Avery. I no, no I, I really agree. And I feel like as, um, as a game designer, like part of what I am doing is writing like creative poetic invitations, but another part of what I am doing is procedural writing, and it behooves me to learn how to uh, write with like a clear, cohesive procedural advice that is concise that calls people into action that is like immediately implementable at every like in every moment. Um, that's what makes like a good game text in a lot of ways. And Atomic Habits, it was just like a masterclass, like you said, in exactly that. Like, I feel like every every compelling idea, like, um, it, it immediately builds on what came before it, and it leads into what is coming next, and it's all actionable. And it's like, he tells you, like, early on, like, here are the four principles of this book, and then just, like, dives into them slowly, and you always, like, are anticipating exactly what's coming. And it's, yeah, it's um, it's a masterclass on how to write a good action-oriented procedural text and as someone who tries to do that for a living I, I really greatly appreciate it on that level like even Excellent. before you get to what the content is yeah all right and i'm going to open it up for the the quick questions from daniel and chris go ahead my my one fiber fire question for you is what is your favorite piece of utopian media whether that's a story movie a game um one that you truly love yeah um so station 11 i don't know if you could call it a utopian um a piece of fiction it's more of like a post-apocalyptic dystopian fiction but it is a it is about how hope and beauty endure no matter what and how like there is always a chance to reach out and connect to people uh even if 99 percent of people are gone even if all communication systems are gone 
even if like there are scary cult leaders and there there is like history of trauma and death like even then even then you can be like a traveling cedar company even then you can like make connections even then you can like find people who you knew 20 years ago and reconnect and i just think like it's it's so good so if that counts that's my answer and if it doesn't count then the dispossessed it absolutely counts, but I will also take the dispossessed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris, do you have any quick rapid fire questions for Avery? No, it was answered with the soup. I have no follow up. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. Yeah. All right, Avery, with that, where can people find you online or elsewhere? Yeah, so um, my website is buriedwithoutceremony.com. Um, you can look at all my games there. I've also done a lot of talks and workshops. And in the past, and all of the kind of outlines and links to those things are on my website as well. I do have a Patreon-esque seasonal subscription um, kind of newsletter that I run called the Goblin Friendship Club, and there's information on that on my website as well. And then finally, my Twitter is Lacking Ceremony. Excellent. All right, Avery, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we're back. Uh, so uh, I really loved having a conversation. It's, it's, well, actually, no, let me, let me try that again. And we're back. So what did we think of our interview with Avery Alder? I feel like, um, she should tell Christopher Nolan to step aside and just get to work on this new, um, space opera that she just created. Oh, absolutely. And, and not only that, but like. The idea of creating, like, like I, I feel like the type of world building jam that we had was like so part and parcel with what is like in her, in her oeuvre anyway. Yeah, you know? like the, the whole, I mean, you know, if, if I had to pick a single word that probably describes Avery um, Alder's like approach to design has to be community. And I'm sure that she would agree with that too. But mm -hmm. like, yeah, that little jam expressed that pretty succinctly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we should probably talk about one other thing besides the jam. What, what yes. should I bring up? <laughs> Better subject matter. Um, let's see. Oh, let me think about it. It was all, it was all, all very intellectual. So I'm trying to think of something. I know. I know. Um, she talked about, um, well, we talked about burnout, which is very practical. Mm -hmm. Um, we talked about rights. We talked about, I didn't get to talk about where she came oh, from. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and to kind of like build off that idea of community, like I loved the idea of like talking with her about, you know, community in the times of COVID and mm -hmm. her using that as an experience to grow as a game designer and kind of like checking in with herself. Like I love that sense of like humility, but also like using that for a room for growth. Also, of course, I'm going to be nerding out about stuff like Atomic Habits because I mean, like. <laughs> If I can't nerd out about productivity books, then what am I going to nerd out about? Come on. I would really like to know, and I know that for Alder, like the internet is her thing. Like she's not in social media circles other than like Twitter, and she's not super interested in like role playing games online. But I feel like she would have something to say about the online communities that have formed, especially in, in reaction to COVID lately. And mm. I really want to know. So it's like, Avery. I hope you can get out on, on the internet and figure this out for us because I feel like there are things that you can solve that I think other people don't really know how to approach. You, know? you realize that she's all over the internet. She has a website. Like, and it's well, not just that like, she has a website. She's not interested in like 
role playing digitally is what I mean. That's what I mean. I, I don't know why you're trying to force her into a role she's not comfortable <laughs> with, Daniel. Want her to solve our problems. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> All right. And uh, that'll just about do it for this episode of World Build with us. Thank you so much for listening. And again, thank you very, very much, Avery Alder, for coming on and having a great chat with us. If you want to have us build your own world, you can submit one to at world. Oh, God. You can submit one to worldbuildwithus at gmail.com, or you can go ahead and tweet us over at Let's World Build. Alternatively, if you want to come join our online community, you can go do so by joining our Discord. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can always donate to our Patreon. You can get your own personalized questions asked to our guests, like you might have heard earlier this episode. You can get all sorts of access to patron-only Discord and, you know, other cool stuff like that. But that's that's neither... I mean, that's not why we do this. We do this because we love you very much and we're going to get through this together. We'll see you next week. Bye.